Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, this is uh, a Making Sense of Life evening. You may have come thinking that we're having our usual evening service. Just from time to time, actually not all that recently, we have uh, cancelled, so to speak, or abandoned an evening worship service in order to explore from a Christian perspective a particularly topical issue uh, with a distinguished visiting speaker. And we called it Making Sense of Life, and uh, we hope very much that this relaunch of Making Sense of Life will uh, lead to other evenings. Because of the centenary of World War I and because of the proliferation of conflicts around the world, we thought tackling the whole issue of what the Christian view of war and just war is would be an appropriate subject. And so could I ask you to give a very warm welcome to uh, Professor Nigel Bigger, who is uh, our speaker this evening. Nigel. To be honest, Nigel, there are so many handles to your name, I wasn't sure whether to say doctor, <laughs> professor, canon, so maybe just Nigel's, all right. Nigel Simpler. <laughs> Nigel, you and Ginny were here, you, this isn't your first time in St. Andrews, just tell us the historic connection with St. Andrews. It's not. Um, when Ginny and I came back from Canada in 1985, uh, I was working at Latimer House on Banbury Road, and we worshipped here for five years. Uh, um, so I think the last time I was up here was probably about 23 years ago, which is a horrible thought. <laughs> Can't what, be what, I mean, we lose people from St. Andrews all the time, but uh, why do we lose you? What happened next? Um, in 1990, I was appointed uh, chaplain of Oriel College, so uh, um, Ginny and my center of gravity moved into the city center, and during term time, I was worshiping in Oriel College and therefore in the city center. But now you're based at Christchurch? Back in Christchurch, came back uh, seven years ago. And just, just give us a little, if you're not dealing with this in your talk later, just a little bit of what your job is now, what, what your academic pursuit is, what, yeah, what you, what, what's your role in the university is. Right, so I, so I have a, a full-time academic job as Professor of Moral Theology, so I, I, I teach Christian ethics to undergraduates, but mostly to postgraduates, and, and do research in that field. But I also have a, a part-time role in Oxford Cathedral, so I'm a canon of the cathedral as well. Right. Let's just very quickly go back to the beginning. As, as we were having a conversation now, the only biggers I'd ever heard of before I heard of Nigel were, of course, ones who played rugby for Scotland. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and actually got quite close yesterday. It wasn't too bad against yes, the Yes, we always get close. Yeah. <laughs> were you born in Scotland? I was born in Cumbria. Yeah. Uh, my father was Scottish. My mother was English. Uh, and, um, um, yes, I had two cousins who played for Scotland uh, in the national rugby team in the 70s. Right. And um, did, did you come um, to Oxford as, an, as a student? Were you an undergraduate? Well, I, I, I came south to boarding school in Bath at the age of 13, which right. is where I lost most of my Scottish accent, um, and then came from Bath to Oxford. Right. Uh, I, I, I read history at uh, Worcester College in 1973 to 6. Oh, I'm a history graduate at Oxford as well. Are you? How, when, are you when are you here? What a, what a different direction our paths <laughs> went in after that. <laughs> and then um, after that, after the undergraduate, what happened academically then? Oh, right. well, um, it, it, although I read history here, I'd begun to uh, acquire an interest in theology, and I, I, I didn't want to get ordained, um, um, but I was keen to, to learn more about what I should believe as a Christian, so I ended up uh, uh, going off for a, initially for a year to Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, which is where I met Ginny in September 77. 
Good thing you remembered that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I went out for a year initially, but I had so much fun I went back for a second year. And then uh, I ended up going from there to doing a PhD at the University of Chicago, uh, and then married Ginny in, in 82, and we lived in Toronto for two years. So I was in North America for seven years altogether right. before we came back here. Well, it's great to, to welcome you. I'm going to hand over to you now for your lecture. Just so that you know, there will, uh, Nigel's going to speak to us for about half an hour or so. Uh, during that time, if you want to text, if you've got your phone with you and wish to text a question which comes into your mind, you can do so to the number that is on the TV screen on my right. So this is a new thing that we're trying. So if a question comes into your mind, feel free to text it if you've got the facility to do that. Uh, there will also obviously be a chance for you to ask questions and to contribute uh, after he has spoken as well. But there will be those two things. Thank you very much. You have the notes and you also have a, uh, on the table here at the side an uh, introduction blurb on Nigel's book, In Defense of War. Are copies of your book? You haven't brought copies of the book? No, I haven't, but uh, uh, you can get them at the OUP bookshop. Okay, in time. and the, you can read all about the book. Um, uh, pick up a, a leaflet from the, from the table here as you go, if you wish. Feel free to plug your book as much as you like. Fine. <laughs> I shall. Thank you, Nigel. Right. I'll hand over to you. Thanks. So my plan is, is not to speak for more than 30 minutes, because I'm sure you'll have oodles of, of questions, this being a, a topic in which most people have opinions, usually quite strong ones. Um, you, you've got the handout. Um, having reviewed it, I, I'm going to play around with it a bit. I'm not going to go through it in quite the order I've given it to you, but most of what I say is on the handout. I, I'll, I'll try and guide you around it as I speak. So uh, let me start off by taking you to Crete, at least imaginatively. Um, on the northwest coast of Crete is uh, probably the prettiest town uh, of Khania. If you drive out westward from Khania, um, a few miles out of, out of the town on the left-hand side, uh, you will come across a German military cemetery. And in that cemetery uh, are buried, um, uh, among others, the German soldiers who were killed when they invaded Crete in 1941. Um, in the cemetery, there is a permanent exhibition. Uh, and if you read a little German, uh, you will figure out from the exhibition uh, that part of what is told there is the story of three brothers, the three von Blücher brothers. Uh, the, the, the older one had joined the elite uh, parachute regiment, the two younger brothers, who hero worshipped the older one, uh, followed him, as younger brothers often do. And all three brothers dropped out of the sky onto Crete on the 21st of May, 1941. And all three brothers were killed on the same day. So a very, a very poignant human story. And the, the conclusion that the, the exhibition draws from this tragedy is that war is evil and we should repudiate war always and everywhere. Well, I'm not German, I'm British. So I thought to myself when I heard that, yes and no. Because what the exhibition glided past 
was the nettle of what exactly the British, Australian, New Zealand and Greek troops on the ground were supposed to have done when German paratroopers fell out of the sky. What exactly should they have done? It always takes two to fight a war. So if you don't want war, when someone's dropping out of the sky on top of you, you don't resist. And if you don't resist in Crete, you don't resist in England or France or Eastern Europe. Uh, had we not resisted in 1939 to 45, there would have been peace of a sort, but not peace for everybody. Most obviously not for the Jews. So one important point I want to make is that peace isn't simple. Uh, peace can be more or less just. It can be seriously unjust. And my peace doesn't equal your peace. So, for example, in 1994, this country remained at peace. So did Europe. So did the U.S. Uh, our peace um, left the Hutu in Rwanda at peace to destroy the peace of 800,000 Tutsi. In 1995, uh, this country remained at peace. So did Europe, so did the US. Thereby, we left Ratko Mladic at peace to destroy the peace and the lives of 7,000 Muslim men and boys at Srebrenica. Peace isn't simple. Now, what um, responses have Christians made to that problem? And here I'm actually going to, to um, section three of the handout there. Well, throughout Christian history, there have been two main lines of response, the pacifist response and the just war response. The pacifist response... Um, reckons that uh, Jesus means non-violence and um, the pacifist reading of the first uh, 300 years or I guess 250 years of the Christian church is that the church was uh, pacifist uh, until Constantine came along in 310 got sort of converted to Christianity um, uh, after which Christianity was tolerated and then became dominant in the Roman Empire. And as a consequence, the church was seduced by power and got involved in uh, um, running the state and therefore involved in violence. Uh, so with Constantine, the church fell from grace. That's the, a common story told by pacifists of the early history of the church. Uh, if it's not clear, I, I'm not a pacifist, so um, um, that's not the story I would tell. Uh, but it, it is true now, as far as I can gather, that the, the consensus of historians is that, in fact, from, from the late second century, uh, there were two traditions within Christianity, one pacifist, one um, uh, endorsing a certain kind of, of um, use of violence. Uh, and we, we have evidence of Christians in serving the Roman military from that period. 
Um, the crucial move, uh, 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 I mean, you might ask yourselves how on earth one can get from the example of Jesus to the justification of the use of violence and of war. Um, if I can just muddy the New Testament waters a bit, uh, of course it's true that um, uh, Jesus uh, enjoined his disciples to turn the other cheek. Uh, he himself um, did not resist um, um, arrest and judicial murder. That's true. So that counts in favor of uh, a non-violent reading of the New Testament. Um, on the other hand, it's also true that um, on, two, on one occasion, uh, Jesus comes across a Roman centurion, uh, remarks that he has, found, he has not found faith such as this in the whole of Israel, and doesn't rebuke the centurion for being a soldier in the way that Jesus does rebuke uh, a prostitute for being a prostitute, go and sin no more, and after meeting a tax collector who's been extortionate, it's clear that the tax collector feels the need to um, uh, uh, repent of his sins. But when Jesus meets the soldier, there's no rebuke of his profession. And the same happens in the Acts of the Apostles when uh, Peter meets Cornelius. Again, Cornelius is a, is a model of Gentile faith, um, but there's no suggestion that becoming a Christian uh, should involve the relinquishing of the military profession. So, actually, I think the New Testament is, is ambiguous. And if you add to that uh, Romans 13, 1-7, where Paul um, says that the sword was ordained by God to curb the wicked, to defend the innocent, then the, the, the stance of the New Testament toward violence is more uncertain than some would think. The, the, the crucial move um, um, that, that's made um, to make a Christian case for the justification of violence and war is made by St. Augustine in the early four, 400s. Um, Augustine was bishop in North Africa, and uh, he was in correspondence with at least two Roman military tribunes, one of whom was called Marcellinus. And uh, we have some of uh, Augustine's letters to these tribunes. Um, and in one of them, um, he, um, Augustine says, says this, and this is on your handout. Uh, referring to Romans 12:17, he says, For what is it, quote, not to return evil for evil, as St. Paul enjoins? What does it mean, not to return evil for evil, except to shrink from a passion for revenge. Now, that's the crucial move. What Augustine is saying is that what St. Paul, and by implication, what Jesus prohibit is vengeance. Vengeance. The motive of vengeance. The implication is, uh, if you can use force and violence non-vindictively, it can be Christian. Okay, that, that's the crucial move. What's wrong is not, the act, is not the act of force, it's the motive. And that's, that, that's the, 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 the basic move that, out of which the Christian just war tradition springs. 
Uh, and since from Augustine up until the present day, uh, this tradition of reasoning about the justification of war in Christian terms has continued and developed. Let me make, um, before I move on to, to, to um, talk about the, the criteria that have been developed to um, identify a just war, let, let me make two uh, preliminary comments about what this notion of just war means and doesn't mean. First of all, um, a just war is, is not waged by the righteous, the simply righteous against the simply unrighteous. In a Christian perspective, um, those who wage war with justification are sinners too. Just war is only ever waged by sin, one set of sinners against another. Right? So, when you wage a just war, you cannot demonize the enemy. They are sinners too. And related to this, um, a just war is not a morally pure war. Actually, to be safer, we should talk about a, a war that is justified, all things considered. Uh, let, me, let me at this point just put a question to you, which, which you have to answer one way or another. Uh, you have to vote on this. Um, the war against Hitler from 39 to 45, you have two choices. Either you think that war was justified, or it wasn't. So you, you can't sit on the fence. If you think it was justified, all things considered, would you raise your hand? Okay, thank you. And if you think it wasn't justified, all things considered. Okay. Well, so that, yeah, uh, um, I've done this before. And certainly in a British audience, uh, that reaction is typical, overwhelmingly in favor of justification. Okay. I think it was justified. But, but let me just show you how flawed, morally flawed, this war was. Um, it is probably the case that President Roosevelt lied to the American people twice in order to encourage them to come onto our side. Uh, you will also be aware of um, the RAF carpet bombing German cities, which is arguably immoral. And you may also know that when the Soviets invaded Germany, they, they are estimated to have raped up to two million German women. I simply mention that to, to uh, make a concrete point about the fact that a war that is justified may well be justified, probably will be justified, in spite of moral flaws. Because all wars, even just ones, are waged by sinners. And a war is a complex event involving hundreds of thousands, millions of people, um, and involving all sorts of different acts, some of which will have been immoral. So a just war is not a pure war. It's justified, all things considered. Right now, uh, so I'm now going on to the first page of the handout, and I'm going to talk about some of the criteria that the Christian tradition of just war reasoning has developed to identify when a war is justified or not. 
And I, I don't have time to go through all of them, so I'm going to pick my way through them. I'm going to start with, um, this is under, I should explain, there are two categories of criteria. One has to do with um, the question of whether to go to war in the first place. The question of justice toward war, or jus ad bellum. The second shorter list of two has to do with the question of having gone to war, um, how do we wage it rightly or justly? Justice in war, jus in bellow. Okay. Let me take the, the first category first, the question of justice with regard to going to war in the first place. And I'll start with the fourth bullet point, last resort. And I start there to make the point that um, Christian proponents of justified war and Christian pacifists share this. Just warriors agree that if conflict can be re resolved by non-violent means, it should be. It should be. Because war is a terribly destructive, unpredictable thing. Um, and um, if there are other ways of resolving conflict satisfactorily, they should be used. So just warriors and pacifists share that view. The, the, the first word that, that any Christian will say is peace. Keep the peace, make the peace. If a decent peace can be made or kept. So, for example, uh, if President Putin uh, can be dissuaded from further interference in Ukraine uh, by financial and other sanctions, that would be much preferable to going to war. We will see whether that can be done. So let me point out that sanctions are not entirely peaceful, they're aggressive. Sometimes they can be lethal. So the, the distance between sanctions and war is not strict. But anyway, so the, the first word is peace, war should be a last resort. Then going back to the first uh, one on the list, what are just cause for war? Well, contrary to... Um, what international law might lead you to think. Um, the, the paradigm of a just war is not self-defense. The paradigm of a just war is a war that is waged to rectify a grave injustice. So according to Christian just war theory, um, the, a just cause is a grave injustice that needs putting right. The question of when the injustice is grave enough to warrant the costs and risks of war is a, is a moot point, and we can talk about that. Um, the UN Charter uh, gives us such things as genocide. Um, uh, others would have that relaxed to um, mass atrocity. But we can talk about that. But fundamentally, if, if there's no grave injustice to rectify... There's no cause for war. And implicit in that is, of course, that, that, that given the costs and risks of war, um, tolerable injustice should be tolerated. Not all forms of injustice are worth the risks of war. Okay. I'll pass by the, the second criterion of right intention and go to the third, proportionality, because this is, this is difficult. 
This is difficult. The, the idea is that, that going to war should be proportionate. Now, some people interpret that to mean that we should never go to war unless it is clear that the benefits we will secure will outweigh the costs. The problem with that is two. First of all, there is no way to weigh up all the costs and benefits because let's suppose a war uh, costs, let's suppose, let's go back to the Second World War. Uh, the Second World War did some good things. Regime change in Berlin, it uh, stopped the Holocaust reaching its uh, um, completion. Um, it, it saved Europe from several generations of gross tyranny, which is, those are all benefits. But on the, on the disbenefit side, it cost somewhere between 60 and 80 million deaths, and of course resulted in half of Europe being handed over to the tender mercies of Stalin. I know of no way of calculating which was heavier. It can't be done. The other thing is that when we're trying to figure out whether to go to war or not, we have absolutely no idea what the consequences are going to be. Well, we might have some idea, but not really. History doesn't, is not predictable. So there's a problem with, with what this criterion actually requires. Um, one thing that does make sense is that uh, if, you, if you think of disproportion being counterproductive, so um, in 1956 and 68, um, 56, the Hungarians rose against the Soviets. In 60, 56, the Hungarians rose against the Soviets. In 68, the Czechs did. In both cases, the Soviet tanks uh, uh, rolled into Budapest and, and uh, Prague. In both cases, NATO did not go to war. Why? Because although we would have liked to have helped the Hungarians and the Czechs, uh, the risk of provoking um, um, or, or conflict escalating to a full nuclear exchange between NATO and Russia, Soviet Russia, was too great. Uh, and if you end up with a full nuclear exchange, you end up with Europe being devastated, including Hungary and Czechoslovakia. So had we gone to war, we risked destroying the very countries we'd be trying to liberate. In other words, the means of war would have undercut the whole point. That makes sense to me. Uh, then the, the final uh, criterion I'll, men I'll mention is that of legitimate authority. Uh, the idea here is that um, only an authority that has, has responsibility for the public good should have the right to declare war. Uh, and in our day, the quarrel is over whether uh, the UN Security Council is the only authority that has the right to authorize a war that is not self-defensive or whether national governments uh, may act unilaterally to intervene in other countries to stop gross injustice. Okay. Um, I, I won't talk about um, the, the second category of uh, criteria at, at this point. We, if you've got questions about them, I can 
We can talk about that later. I want to go on to the, to the two cases on page two. And again here I'm going to have to be um, sort of a bit uh, uncomprehensive. Um, the First World War is on our minds in this uh, um, centennial. Um, who was to blame for the First World War? Uh, well, we can't treat the First World War as a single thing. Um, you have to ask questions about uh, um, whether Gabriel Princip should have assassinated Archduke Ferdinand, questions about uh, whether the Serbian Secret Service should have supported Princip, uh, whether the Austrians should have invaded Serbia when they refused to have a transparent inquiry as to the complicity of the Serbian state in that assassination, whether Russia should have mobilized in defense of Serbia against Austria, whether Germany should have given Austria a blank check. Uh, in other words, there are a whole series of, of decisions that need moral evaluation and uh, um, uh, different, uh, different weights of culpability might be apportioned to different actors. Um, for, for a long, long time, uh, since about the 60s, um, the prevailing view has been that Berlin was responsible. And that's not just a British view. It is a view that was established by a German historian called Fritz Fischer. And that view prevailed in, in, even in Germany until very recently, that Berlin was primarily responsible for allowing the war to escalate from a Balkan crisis to a continental war and a global war. Um, you may have uh, uh, come across the name Christopher Clark in the last 18 months, who an Australian-born, Cambridge-based historian who published a book called The Sleepwalkers uh, last year, um, in which, among other things, uh, he says actually that uh, responsibility needs to be spread, not beyond Berlin to uh, Vienna, but especially to St. Petersburg. Um, So the business of trying to figure out who's to blame for what in the First World War is a, is a complex one. Clark thinks it shouldn't even be attempted. Clark thinks that, that everyone was equally responsible. Um, I disagree with that, but that's uh, another question. Just, just focusing down on, on our own country, uh, Britain's decision to enter the war in, on August the 4th, uh, 1914... Why did we do it? Uh, some people, like Niall Ferguson, thinks we shouldn't have done it. We should have stayed out. Um, why did we do it? Uh, we could have stayed out. Uh, we weren't bound by uh, treaty obligation to France to enter the war. Um, we, were, we, were, we had an alliance with France, but it wasn't uh, strictly binding. Um, we did it because um, Edward Gray, the then Foreign Secretary, persuaded the Cabinet, or most of them, that we had a moral obligation to go to the aid of France when she suffered an unprovoked attack by Germany. Um, what I think is morally crucial is uh, that France was not planning to attack Germany, uh, that... Uh, um, 
at a very late stage, uh, the French ordered their troops to stay 10 kilometers behind the border to make it clear that they were not planning to attack. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Germany launched a preventative war on a false pretext. The pretext was that French troops had crossed the border, which wasn't true, and the other pretext was that French aircraft had bombed Nuremberg, which wasn't true. But Germany launched a preventative attack anyway. And uh, Edward Gray felt that we were honor-bound to go to France's uh, aid. Secondarily, there was the issue of the invasion of Belgium. Um, this country, along with Germany and others, was a signatory to a treaty that guaranteed Belgian neutrality. So secondarily, um, uh, uh, um, the invasion of Belgium uh, was um, one of our causes for war. But frankly, also, that there was also British national interest involved here. Um, um, a German occupation of Belgium would have put a hostile power directly facing the Thames estuary. And for that reason, for a long time, it had been British policy to avoid having any hostile power occupy those ports. So national interest was involved. Um, my own view is that national interest as such is not immoral. There can be perfectly legitimate national interests. And in that case, it seems to me that Britain's interest in not having a hostile power occupying those ports was not unreasonable. So I'm inclined to think that, that our involvement in, 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 in our entry into the war in 1914 was, was just. Um, there's more to be discussed about that, but uh, uh, I think it was just. However, um, entering the war is one thing, but we stayed at it for four years. And as you well know, we, we and the empire lost about 800,000 dead and many others maimed. How on earth could that be worth, um, could that loss, could that cost have been worth whatever we were trying to defend in 1914? Well, this brings us back to the, the difficult issue of proportionality. Um, the, the reason that the First World War seems to us so um, criminally wasteful is that it, it compares poorly to our experience in World War II. So in World War II, um, this country, and I think the empire as a whole, or the Commonwealth rather, lost about 568,000 dead. And of course, the Second World War lasted five years, the First World War lasted four, and in the first we lost 800,000 dead. So it makes the First World War seem very wasteful and profligate. Um, but appearances deceive here, um, because in the First World War, we were involved on the major front, the Western Front. In the Second World War, we weren't, and nor were the Americans. The crucial front was the Eastern Front, where the Soviets broke Hitler. And the cost of the Soviets was 11 million military dead and 11 million civilians. So the cost of the Second World War was not lighter than the first. The cost to us was lighter, because we never fought on the main front. What's more, uh, there were times um, when we got bogged down in Normandy in 44 and in Italy in 44 too, 
uh, where, the, where the casualty rates for us were just as bad as in the trenches in the First World War. So the argument is, if you reckon our fighting the Second World War was worth it, it's not obvious why you don't think that in the First World War too. Um, I should probably stop there. I could talk about Syria and Islamic State. Should I do that briefly? Yeah, okay. It's complicated, so let me just make two points. Um, It seems to me that the original rebellion against President Assad in March 2011 was justified. Uh, To remind you of what happened, in uh, March 2011, a bunch of school kids scrawled on the wall of their school, down with the system. Uh, The kind of thing that all of us of the born of the 60s, used to do, down with the system. Um, Unlike those of us who did that on on our school walls in the 60s, um, the school kids in Dera were arrested, uh, carted off to Damascus, interrogated, and by some reports, tortured. In not unreasonable response to this, the parents of the children in Dera and their relatives and neighbors protested. In response to that, the security forces shot several of them dead. This then provoked um, others to join the protests, which swelled to 20,000. The response to which is the security forces shot several hundred dead. Um, But for me, the the clincher is that um, President Assad did not rebuke or reprimand or discipline the provincial governor who presided over this. In other words, the center of the state owned what was going on. Under those conditions, it seems to me that that armed rebellion, which is what happened, was not unreasonable. Um, Should we become involved, as some argued, as I initially thought? Should we have supported the rebels? Well, it's it's difficult to say. Certainly the fact that we didn't meant that uh, uh, jihadism uh, fueled by finances from Qatar and Saudi filled the gap. And that uh, then, helped by al-Maliki's sectarian policies in Iraq, has given rise to the expansion of Islamic State. The point I want to make here is the role of national interest. As I said, I don't think national interest is, is... in itself immoral. I think it's perfectly reasonable for us in this country and for, um, for Americans to ask themselves uh, why our children or our brothers and sisters or our parents in military uniform should be put in harm's way to go and help remote peoples. It's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. Why should we sort out Syria? And I think we decided that although we didn't like what was happening there, um, that what was happening in Syria just wasn't, didn't engage our national interest enough for us to take the risks and pay the costs of war. And I'm not sure we were wrong about that. Had Syria been geographically located where France is, 
we would have paid, paid whatever cost it took to settle it because our own national interest would have been directly involved. But Syria is not where France is, it's where Syria is. It's a long way away. Islamic State, however, um, um, engages our national interest more directly in that it has a lot of uh, financial power and, and military power. And we are, among other members of the West, we are its declared enemy. There's also the complication that several hundred British citizens alongside French and German and other European citizens are fighting for it, which brings the problem back onto our streets. So the general point here is to do with, with the engagement of national interest, and I think our national interest is more engaged with Islamic State than it was with the Syrian rebellion. We have more reason to be engaged militarily than we had in March 2011. There's an awful lot more we could talk about on that front, but I'll let you start to raise the questions.